welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend, one of the true gems of our industry. And everybody who knows you, Rick, says something nice about you, which is very, very unique. Uh, the character that you possess and the how much you care and the compassion and the quality of the work that you did in our industry for decades. Uh, so it's great to finally have you on Great Minds, Rick. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Well, thank you, Matt. It's great to be here with you. And I am honored to be included in the list of over a hundred and some of these that you've done to date. And I have to say uh, that listening to many of these now, I'm uh, just blown away by the depth of your research and your questions and, and leading these. And, and while I'm you know, really honored to be included in some of the ones like Keith Reinhardt and Chuck Porter and Jeff Goodby and you know, there's many of my mentors that are not mentees, but people I've been in the business with. Um, the ones that I've really enjoyed the most are like Andrew Logan and you know, Martha Reeves and Steve Cropper and, and those, the record stories just blow me away with the intersections of everybody. So well, thank you. On, honored to be included in this list, but I think you might have to make it more like average minds now rather than great minds. Listen, it's just, <laughs> it's just a title, Rick. So <laughs> thank you for those kind words. So we're, we're coming up on a big, there were so many places to start with you, Rick. Uh, not the easiest decision, uh, but we're coming up on a big anniversary in New York. Um, my family's all from Brooklyn. My grandparents came through Ellis Island, my grandfather in particular. I grew up in Queens uh, and I'm very passionate about my hometown. And I'm excited about this concert that they're doing in Central Park. I don't know that it's the best idea given what's going on, but nevertheless, I'm excited to see New York back up on its feet. You were the driving force of something 20 years ago that uh, raised a tremendous amount of money for firemen. And I'd love to go back in time to October of 2001 and talk about brotherhood. All right. Well, that's a, a, yeah, a special place in my heart and uh, in time uh, when that all happened, 9-11. Uh, uh, I happened to be uh, in one of the worst places in the, on, in the country at the time. Uh, we were in Las Vegas with three colleagues of mine from Ogilvy uh, for a, a Miller Beer convention where we were to present work the following day. And uh, we had an apartment in the city. Our youngest daughter at the time was going to a, a performing arts school in Manhattan. And so we had an apartment uh, on 80th Street in Columbus. And my wife was in staying at the apartment with my daughter while I was in Vegas. And she called me at, uh, you know, very early in the morning, like six in the morning, Vegas time, crying, screaming uh, that, uh, you know, there had been an attack on the, the towers and to turn on the TV, which I did and uh, was, you know, in shock and ran downstairs to see what I could do about getting myself and uh, my three colleagues out of Las Vegas. And why I said it was the worst place was while we were, while I was running down to, to see what I could do about getting out of Vegas, we, uh, <laughs> there's people playing slot machines and craps and 
blackjack and TVs all over monitors, you know, with the towers coming down and people are just playing like nothing's happening. And uh, anyways, we got one of the last rental cars out of town. Uh, we were told that it had to go back to LA and I said, oh yeah, it's going back to LA. And we headed south, made, instead of making a right to go to LA, we made a left and drove cross country in two and a half days to get back home. And that Friday, when I finally arrived back home, I went into the city. Um, my oldest daughter had an apartment in the city. She had watched the towers come down from the top of her apartment building. As I said, our, we had an apartment in Columbus. And uh, so I went with my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter, and we walked the streets uh, on the follow that next day, Saturday. Uh, and I was, you know, really, blown away by all the uh, makeshift uh, flowers and signs and everything that had popped up in front of all the firehouses. Um, and so I started taking pictures of those, uh, you know, being shown at, uh, to all the firehouses. And <clears throat> when I got back on Monday to work, I downstairs at Ogilvy, there was a, uh, you know, an instant print where you could take your, your photos and get them printed. So that evening I had drinks with a good friend, Doug Evans, and we were sitting and I was showing him the shots of all these, you know, things that had popped up in front of the firehouses and said, you know, somebody should go out and get these photographed and make a book out of it because, uh, these things are going to get washed away in the rain in the next couple of days. And he said, well, you should do it. And I go, I don't know anything about making a book. And he goes, well, you know how to communicate, you know, so, you know, you know how to get in touch with photographers. So that following morning, I went to Shelly Lazarus, who was our CEO, and said to Shelly, you know, I have this idea, I showed her the photos and uh, said, you know, I'd love to try to get together a group of people to see if we could possibly uh, create something and uh, create a book. And she, and, but I'd, I'd like to ask our clients to see if they would be you know, willing to help support this. And the one that I had had the most relationship with was American Express for you know, sort of the account I helped win back over the years before. And I had been on that pretty much my entire tenure at Ogilvy up to that time. So I called up her client and, uh, you know, they said, of course, Ken Schnault uh, and John Hayes at the time, Elder Papone, who was a client that we really worked with the most, all said, yes, by all means, you know, go ahead. In fact, we have a publishing arm. We can help you get it published. So that's what we did. We called on that following Saturday, uh, our art buyers, uh, Bolaria Hall and and uh, uh, geez, now I forget her name right now. Um, Cindy Rivet, Cindy Rivet, and Gloria Hall pulled together 60 photographers and, and artist representatives to come together on that Saturday. And we literally gave out assignments and firehouses that were affected. So I, I forget how many firehouses were affected in the city, but we sent them to, I think there were 60 some that were affected. We send them to 
the firehouses said, do not try to tread in anything. We don't want any pictures of any towers coming down or any of that. We just want to show respect and capture these uh, you know, uh, displays in front of all the firehouses that, that were honoring everybody. And if you can get inside, great, but don't, you know, don't force your way in. And so they did. And we were able to pull together uh, the following week. Uh, American Express Publishing said they would help us produce the book if we could get it to them in a certain amount of time. And we spent a team uh, that was put together, really Michael Ian Kay, who was a great designer within the brand integration group under Brian Collins. Uh, and again, I said, Cindy Ribbett, Gloria Hall, who were the art buyers who really created, brought everybody together. Uh, Lynn Rohr, who was uh, head of production, helped us get all the pieces together. And then uh, uh, Tony Hendra, uh, was married to uh, Carla Hendra, who was uh, head of Ogilvy One, and Tony got involved and helped us get Francis McCourt, and we really put this thing together in no time, uh, and we were able to get it published, uh, and out uh, by December 7th was the date that we had shot for, and we were able to get it, and uh, we worked with the, the city fire department, and at the time, Mayor Giuliani, when he was somewhat saner. And uh, we you know, got their permission and they wrote forwards to it. And we were able to get 250,000 published. Had we been able to get more, we probably would have been able to sell them out. They sold out within three months uh, and they were it raised over $2 million that went to the Fireman's Fund for the families of the fallen. And it's still rather special in my heart. The only sad part about it is the plates that they made the, the book with uh, once American Express Publishing got sold, uh, the plates got pitched and we're not able to now reproduce the book because it would still be one of the best sellers down at you know the, the memorial uh, downtown at 9-11. Mm, amazing story. You know, it's one of the things that the industry and I've definitely drank some of the Kool-Aid here, but our industry does enormous things to help in times of need. And, you know, there's so much of the dialogue today is about the more challenging areas of the business. Those that digital is leaving behind and all the issues around data and privacy. But there's a fundamental notion of stepping up and helping that this industry has a tradition and you're a very big part of that tradition. Uh, I thank you for that. And I, you know, again, we're just motivated to try to, to help when the need arises. I wish we were more, uh, you know, purposeful in doing that on a constant basis rather than when something happens, whether it be Black Lives Matter uh, or some of the recent events. But, uh, you know, as an industry, we would, we try to say, and I, you know, you look at the agencies today and a lot of them are purpose-driven uh, with their clients and try to get them to be more purpose-driven. But I think that as an industry, we would be better served if the agencies were more purpose-driven also and not just trying to get their clients to, to be that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were fortunate that, that this book, you know, did register and met with a, a lot of, 
a lot of people's emotional strings and didn't do what most of the books coming out of that time did, which was to show the, the, the buildings coming down and, you know, all of the terrible things that happened around that. But this was more celebrating the, the people, the heroes who are the real brave people and go, and I hear bravery talked about a lot, you know, about our industry, especially listening to a lot of your podcasts. And yet I've always felt that, you know, we're really not that brave. You know, the worst thing's going to happen is the client says, no, if we try to sell them something or if it doesn't work, then, uh, you know, we probably still have our jobs. We might, you know, get our hands slapped, but the real brave people are the firemen, the police and the people in the military who, you know, go into harm's way in a real way. Uh, and that's what this book was meant to, to, to try to uh, honor. And uh, I could not agree more. The, the people that are on the front lines, uh, those are the true brave people in our country. So let's uh, go back in time a little bit. And I heard a story somewhere that right around, give or take, 1974, when you were in Chicago and were trying to get a job at Leo Burnett, that you just kind of showed up and <laughs> basically wouldn't leave until they hired you. That's a true story. Uh, you know, I think there's stories like that. Lee Cloud has a great story like that. His, his desire to get hired at Chiat Day. Uh, and he created a campaign called Hire the Harry and would send something to Lee and I mean to Jay and Guy probably every day and a guy named Haya Blanco who was at the time the creative director. Uh, my story is I you know I got out of the service I wanted to to you know get into this business from the time I could remember um, probably one of the few that actually was like that um, and when I got out of the service I wanted to go to Art Center College of Design and did in Los Angeles, uh, but really didn't have the, the money to, to pay for the, the, the tuition that was necessary at the time. It was, you know, not that expensive compared to today, but it still was, even with the GI Bill, I wasn't able to afford it. So I, I spent uh, two semesters out of a tri trimester year and said, you know, I got it. I'm just going to have to go and get a job. My brother had just moved to Chicago. My older brother, he was uh, the head of tire sa uh, sales at Montgomery Ward. And uh, he said, well, come to Chicago. You know, I'll get you an interview at the, the marketing department of Montgomery Ward, which was, you know, doing the newspaper ads every day. So I, I went and I took my book and I got hired that day and actually started the first day I showed my book at Montgomery Ward because I don't think they had seen you know, somebody who had a pretty decent book and understanding of advertising coming to their department where you did paste up ads for, you know, you'd get a bag from, from a department and each ad would have, uh, each page would have who was going to be the lead uh, on that page, which department was going to be secondary and which department would be third and fourth. And you had to sort of, you know, create the ad with the things that they wanted to be sales, whether it was tires or whatever. So I was working there. And uh, so I went down to Leo Burnett because that's where I wanted to go. I had been told by a teacher at Art Center that, you know, Leo Burnett hired a lot of Art Center students. So I went down and met this guy named Irv Hiller. He was the, uh, the recruiter for 
the uh, for Leo Burnett, who's bald, who's big. And uh, I went in and showed my book and Merv says, well, it's nice, but you know, right now we don't have an opening. And, and so, uh, you know, I'll let you know when something comes up. And a week went by. And so I went back down and, you know, asked if there was anything. And he said, well, no, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'll let you know when something comes up. So every day for lunch there, I walked from, from Montgomery Wards, which was uh, right on the, the river, walked down to Leo Burnett, which was down the Magnificent Mile, literally about a mile to the Hancock building. Or not the Hancock, they were in, uh, uh, I forget the name of the building they were in, but uh, went down and would sit in Merv's office at lunch every day for about a month and a half. And finally he came out and he said, you're a pain in my ass, I'm gonna get you an interview. And I got an interview and, and got the job. But it was you know, straight perseverance. Uh, and I think you know, one of the things I've always talked to students about was confidence. You have to be confident in yourself and, and be willing to put yourself out there and you know, not just send a note to somebody and say, I'm looking for a job and they put you off because they'll put you off. So you have to stay vigilant and, and go and do it. And so I did. And you talked about always wanting to be in the advertising business. Was there something going back to, you know, young Rick Boyko, really young Rick Boyko that triggered that interest? Is it, did it come from a family member or friend or where did that initial spark come from? Yeah, it came from my dad. So my dad, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, go back to sort of the beginnings of them. My father was Ukrainian. His parents came through Canada. Uh, my mom was Italian. She, her, my grandparents on her side came through Ellis Island. Uh, and they were born in Youngstown, Ohio. They met there. My dad joined the Army Air Corps in uh, January of 1942, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, became a illustrator in, in the Army, Air Corps painting planes and uh, camouflage painting, basically planes is what his job was. Uh, and he got out and worked at, uh, started at a place called McKelvey's, which was a uh, department store. Uh, he worked alongside Mary Wells there uh, in the art department of McKelvey's. And, uh, along the way, he, uh, decided that he had fallen out. He painted, uh, outdoor boards on his part-time to make more money. And he fell off a scaffolding, broke his back. And at that time, you know, the only way to, to fix you was a 50, 50 shot that you wouldn't come out of it very well. So, the doctor told him his best thing was to move to drive climate. So he, you know, packed up my mom and at that time my two other brothers, and drove us across country in a in a station wagon, or down Route 66 to Fontana, California, which was another steel town. So Youngstown was a steel town, and a lot of Italians uh, were in both towns and. They went to Fontana and he landed there. It's, I always said they ran out of gas before they hit LA because <laughs> right. it was 40 miles, 40 miles uh, east of LA. Um, and he started a little advertising leads called Advertising Associates. Uh, he 
you know, he did everything. He hand lettered, he uh, did the packaging, he did the signage, he did the ads, he did the, you know, whatever needed to be done, he did it. And he and a guy named Harry Hogan started this little agency. And, um, and I would watch him out in the garage every night and he would just, you know, he would do whatever it was. And I learned by observing and, and watching him and, you know, the association of people that he dealt with a guy named Sal Cruz who had a screen shine shop in, in San Bernardino, California. I started working when I was about eight years old, cleaning the screens at Sal's place on Saturdays to earn a buck, but also to learn how to screen print and, you know, and, and seeing how all these signs were being made and done. And uh, so, you know, I, I was always just drawn to that. My mom's Italian. She's a great cook. She plays music. And, and so she never stopped my artistic desire. I mean, I was not good at anything other than drawing and history, spelling, math, any of that stuff. I was shit. I mean, just, I still can't add one and one without a calculator. I mean, it's just, it's a sad, it's a sad statement. <laughs> what, a, what, what, a, what a terrific story. As much time as we spent together, I did not know that about your dad. So your career is interesting in so many ways. One of the ways it's interesting is that you rose to the very top of the creative side of our industry and your roots are squarely in the area we were just talking about, Rick, around art and design. You started with Burnett as in the art department and moved on to two iconic agencies, which I want to talk about, Benton and Bowles and then Shiat, also working in the art and design part of our business. Talk about that as a foundation for creativity overall. Uh, I think more often than not, folks come up on the planning side or other parts of the industry as they rise into the executive ranks. Um, you did not. Your roots are squarely, you know, with uh, the 64 box of Crayola crayons in hand and a big white piece of paper. Talk about that as a foundation for you overall and how it helped you and where it might have not helped you. Well, I think, you know, again, I have to go trace back a little bit that um, when I was young, my mom always said that I would, you know, fall asleep during the shows and wake up during the commercials. And uh, I just always was drawn to that. So while I truly, when watching my dad, felt that design was more the place I was going to go, because he, again, he did package design, he did all the things. So, and he didn't really do television advertising. It was a small little agency in Fontana, California, that then they opened an office in San Bernardino. Uh, <clears throat> so design was more the direction I was gonna go when I got to Burnett. Uh, you know, one of the good things about the agencies at that time, especially Burnett and the bigger ones like Lear, but like Ogilvy, uh, they had training programs. And so I was able to sort of get in and learn my craft there a little bit. Uh, not so much there as I did later at Benton Bowles and, and then obviously at Chaite. But, you know, so the creative side was always where I wanted to go. The storytelling was always what I thought could was the, the real thing. Uh, and I think, you know, that was my inspiration all along. 
I didn't really have any real managerial skills and I didn't take any real college. You know, I have no degree. Uh, so other than the four years in the Air Force and the two semesters uh, at Art Center, that was really my only education and other than high school. But uh, I think that was probably one of the things I would have loved to have had later on when I rose to a position of needing to be a leader. Uh, had I had some training in that, I, it might've been an easier evolution. Uh, but, you know, I learned also by watching, you know, the people that, uh, that were leading at the time, whether it was Jay Scheich, Guy Day, Lee Clow, uh, Charlotte Beers, you know, I, I watched and observed how people who were leading did the job. I, one of the things I always believed is that, you know, I, I, I never got, took a job I didn't really want because uh, I didn't want to be in a position and not being able to deliver. So you touched on it, but let's go a little bit deeper on training. The three shops that were sort of that initial troika of your early career, Burnett, Benton and Bowles, and Shia Day, were all renowned for how they invested in their people. Companies still do that today, but I think most often it's more about the trappings of all the, uh, you know, look at that great cafeteria they have, or you can get a, you know, a haircut without leaving the office or, you know, dry clean a, a pair of pants without leaving the office. That's, that's a different kind of support. It's not that old school advertising industry training. Talk a little bit more about that and how that helped you. Well, I think, you know, the training at Burnett was much more about uh, understanding the rudimentary part of, of how you get an ad created, which at the time I really didn't know. So, you know, the whole process from, you know, getting the brief and all that was part of the training program there. It wasn't so much about craft. It wasn't until I got to Benton and Bowles and under the legis of David Kennedy, who went on to become the Kennedy of Wyden Kennedy. Uh, David really taught me craft and, you know, how to, to really look and, and put things together in a way that was unique and different and, and challenged uh, the norms at the time. So Burnett was really more just getting me to understand the basics of how things work. And in a big agency like that, really, it was great because I, I learned all the different functions that I needed to learn. And yet didn't have to worry about trying to, to you know, be uh, be good at all of them. There were enough departments around enough people to help support you and all of that. We're in a smaller shop like Benton Bowles, which was a small sh shop in Chicago at the time, it wasn't the big one in New York. Uh, you know, it was a small group of people and, and uh, you had to sort of know, be a jack of all trades in that position. Uh, so David was somebody who, you know, really taught me. And, and then at Shiat Day, it was just like a whole new world because it was such a different type of agency. It was not account driven. Uh, everybody was part of a team. Even the account people were creative thinkers. Nobody was, you know, sitting there uh, just saying you have to do what the brief is. It was, you could always challenge it. Uh, so at Shiat, I truly learned the craft. I learned the how to, you know, to, to push against uh, a norm, uh, you know, and there's a, you know, a terrific brief that I think I got at, at 
shy at that prior to that there wasn't. And when I went to Leo Burnett, you know, the, the culture of Leo Burnett was obviously Leo, the apples in the uh, each of the you know the front desks, uh, reach for the stars was the 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 whole mantra. And they had Leo quotes in several of the halls and pictures they have, but the culture was, a, even though Leo was creative, had become an account-driven agency, uh, totally account-driven. The CRC, which is called the Creative Review Committee, was full of nothing but account people. Uh, Benton and Bowles, they went, and David Kennedy was head of the agency there, uh, creatively, and it was much more creatively driven, and, and yet there was still an account-driven agency. When I got to Shiat, it was totally different. And you walked in and you saw the, the, the whole philosophy was, we're not the uh, Navy, we're the pirates. And I've told students all along the way that that brief, that's the best brief I ever seen. We're not the Navy, we're the, I knew exactly how to act when I got there. You were able to tilt at windmills. You were able to, you know, swing from the yard arms. You were able to, you were, you are meant to do those things to to be different. Um, and it was just a, a a place to all of a sudden be free. And Bill Hamilton, who became my longtime partner and who I partnered with there, uh, said it. I spent my first ten years in the business uh, playing. Uh, uh, Goldilocks trying to find the, the agency that, that fit and Shia Day was that agency. Amazing story. So you touched on some Titanic figures in our industry. You, Jay, of course, David Kennedy, Guy. Looking back on that early part of the career, the Chicago years and uh, your road to Shia, when you look back and reflect on that, who do you remember most fondly and you know, give us a story or two that we wouldn't know about one of those guys from your own experience. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's so many, as you know, I've done this series called Inspiration, which is, you know, very similar to what you do and going back and finding out who or what, uh, you know, inspired somebody to follow the path they did. And uh, so other than my dad, you know, who really was the one that I was my lead mentor, uh, when I got to Chicago, uh, there were many there. Were, when I first started, I have to say that the very first person who I learned the most from was my very first creative director, who I will not name, uh, but who was always pissing and moaning about his job. He hated it. And we would go down and have a drink and he would bitch and moan and, you know, cuss. And and I finally said to him one day, you know, if you hate your effing job so much, why don't you just quit? And he said, Rick, you don't understand. You know, I have a family. I'm locked into here. I can't do this. I'm so, and I realized at that point that this guy had what, you know, many at, at, at Burnett would call the golden handcuffs. Uh, he was miserable in his job. And yet... He, he stayed. And so I was not even married to my wife, Barbara, who is by far the one person who has guided me through my entire career and who I owe everything to. Um, I went home to her and said, told her the story. And I said, if I ever get to where I can't look myself in the mirror and I don't want to go to work, if you want to marry me, you're going to have to follow me because I'm not going to stay in that, in that job. And she said, 
you know, and this is the truth. She said, if you're not happy, I'm not happy. And that, so that one person was probably my lead mentor in a, in a more positive way than he ever understood. Uh, because every time I made a ch change after that, it was because I was either frustrated or I just had gone, you know, gotten to wherever I could at that time and felt it was time to move on. Uh, so that was the first one. There was a guy there, uh, Ralph Birch. There, there were, everybody was doing music, singing and dancing, bringing guitars to the, to the meetings at Leo Burnett. It was, you know, everything was a jingle uh, and was absolutely antithetical to what I believed in. And so uh, there was a team, Ralph Birch, who was an art director and his writer, Pat Martin. And they were the two that every time I saw them in a meeting, they were opposite of everybody else. And so I went up to Ralph one afternoon and said, you know, you guys are the only ones when I see all these presentations, you're the only ones that I actually like. Would you, you know, be interested in mentoring me? And he said, absolutely. And so for the next eight months, Ralph and Pat, I would take scripts to them. I would write scripts. I would do storyboards. Ralph would, you know, sketch over whatever I'd drawn to show how I should try to, you know, make my storyboards a little less uh, studied and less and more freeform. He's, he really did teach me a, my storyboard style that I still, if I was doing storyboards, I would still be using. Um, and Pat Martin wrote these funny scripts that were like five lines. There was no music to them. So that was probably the, the first lesson that I learned and had carried through me was always search out, no matter where you're at, somebody who you think is doing interesting things and go up and ask if you can learn from them. Nobody in my entire career and every time I've taught and all the students that I've taught, I would always say, find somebody to go up and ask. They will be, you know, one, they will be flattered. And two, they will throw out everything they know to you because you want to learn. And so from there, I went to David Kennedy. Somebody told me about David Kennedy at Benton and Bowles and and he was, you know, uh, supposedly the best art director in town as he, and in the end he was. And I went to David and told him I wanted to learn from him. And uh, he hired me and for eight months, he, he, uh, he taught me everything that he could. Uh, my favorite story of, of David, you wanted a side story. Uh, David hired me and he said, you know, I said, so what would I be working on? He said, well, we have had tennis, we have huffy bikes, we have uh, this, we have that. And, uh, and then he said, we have a vivida. And I said, I didn't hear that last one. He said, uh, and I said, one more time, I couldn't hear it. It's ultra sheen. So I said, well, I don't know anything about ultra sheen. I mean, I'm, you know, at that time, a, uh, 20 some year old with blonde, bleach blonde hair, uh, not gonna be able to really work on ultra sheen. So the first thing he gives me is ultra sheen. And I have to go to the Johnson brothers and, and, <laughs> and present a, uh, a campaign for ultra sheen hair care. Uh, needless to say, I, I was not the ideal person they were looking for uh, when I walked in the room, but we were able to sell some ads to them and they did 
learned to respect what we had done. So that was, that was fun. But that was David sort of bringing me in under the guise of all these other things, John Deere tractors and uh, you know, all the really great clients and Ultra Sheen and threw me on the one thing I said, well, I, I couldn't do that one. And he threw me on it to, to really push me to, to, to do something that I didn't think I could. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. So let's jump to your journey to Ogilvy. You have this great, great run working at three iconic shops in our business. And then along comes about 1989 and you begin a long, outrageously successful tenure at Ogilvy. How did you get there? Uh, I got there through, you know, I'm going to jump back a little bit to Shy Day because I hadn't really hit on that as much as sure. I did. And, sure. and, and as I said, Shy was the place that I learned to be who I ended up becoming as far as not following the rules as much as I had prior to that. And, you know, Lee was a fantastic mentor and, and all you had to do was watch Lee to see how he would walk the halls and pop into your office and, and ask what's going on. And at the time we were at the Biltmore Hotel, all the work would be put up on the walls. And that was to me the most enlightening thing uh, that I learned that I tried to carry through when I did get to Ogilvy was trying to break down the, the walls and the doors so that people were more open and more willing to expose their ideas and not hold them to their chest until it was fully born. Uh, because people would walk by, whether it was Brent Thomas, who created the 1984 spot with, with Steve Hayden, or whether it was Jeff Roll or Penny Cafasu or Gary Johns, Jeff Gorman, all these great people who were at Shite Day at the time, who would walk by and go, hey, you know, haven't you tried X, Y, or Z to that ad? Or, you know, what have you, you know, have you tried this and that? And it was so open and willing to collaborate and people to give and, and, and take uh, ideas that that openness really stayed with me for the rest of my career and just willing to not hold back to not think that, you know, you have to wait till you think you have the, the best idea to throw out, but to throw out an idea at its infancy. And, you know, if you fail, you fail. Uh, if it's no good to hear your your comrades and your colleagues tell you it's no good is better to wait and then wait until you have it fully formed and then find out it's an ugly baby to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, so Shiat was that, that ground. And, and while Jay was the guy who was the visionary, who saw 10 years out way ahead of everybody else, who created the open architecture, which many people despise, but I loved. Uh, and, you know, Lee, who was just a, I always describe, you know, Jay was sort of the, the brains and uh, Lee was the heart and Guy was the soul. Guy Day walked around. He was a creative, uh, just as creative, probably more creative than, than Jay. Uh, but he walked around and, and knew that at the same time, uh, creatives have, and everybody in the agency uh, have egos. And every once in a while, you need to be pumped up a little bit. And Jay you know, probably kept me from leaving Shiat Day two to three times when I would just get so frustrated that I was going to leave and he would come in and sit down and just chat, smoke the cigarette all the time. And, 
would, it was a great mentor and a great uh, leader because of that. He understood uh, the humanity of the people that walked the halls and not just uh, the output of the people. So that was, you know, that was Shiat. And, and as I said, I started with Bill Hamilton. Uh, I got hired to be his uh, partner. They had just won a, an account called Home Savings. Uh, it was not the, you know, the, there were so many great things going on at that time, Nike, uh, Apple, uh, Tons of tons of different things, Pizza Hut, and Home Savings was not the glossy account, and uh, so I started working with Bill, and and the two of us really clicked, and you know we started creating work that did took Home Savings and made it an award-winning account, that won probably more more awards than a lot of the other accounts. That took Mitsubishi Electric and did the same thing with that, and Foster Farms we won and did things with and. So at that time, Bill decided that he wanted to move to New York. Jay, you know, obviously had the agency out there and, and uh, had not really been able to grow it very well, even though he'd been there for quite a while. So Jay hired or took Bill out to uh, head up the New York office. And Bill wanted me to go with him. And, you know, I said, I'm not going to New York. And... Uh, uh, I said I spent 10 years in Chicago. I wanted to get back home to California. I'm staying here. <clears throat> so I began working by coastal with Bill. I stayed partnered with him, but we would work back and forth. And uh, eventually he really wanted me to move to New York. And so I agreed I would go out and meet with Jay and Jane Newman um, and Bob Wolf, who were the heads of the office in New York and, and uh, ended up saying, okay, I'll take the job. And while I was doing that decision, Bill was having talks with Martin Sorrell. Uh, Phil Reese, who was uh, you know, the, handling the finances at WPP or as a lawyer uh, and uh, his wife, uh, Eileen Reese, uh, got Bill in discussions with Martin Sorrell. And, and so Bill said, if, you know, I had this great talk with Martin, he wants to hire me and I want you to come. And I said, I'm not going to go to Ogilvy. He said, you know, that's, it's not anything I want to do. I don't want to go back to big agency. And, uh, but Bill made me meet with Martin and, and uh, uh, I decided what the heck, you know, We'll, we'll take a shot at it. And so we did. And uh, we, st he started one month before me and uh, he sort of ran the creative and he made me executive creative director on the, the, the accounts that weren't doing so well at the time, Duracell and a couple others, Seagram's and, and said, you know, see if you can't turn these around. And, you know, so started working on those. The one thing I would say when we got there, everybody was waiting for us to fail. They were saying the shy boys were going to fail. And I think that drove the two of us even, even more uh, to prove them wrong. Uh, I would get in at six in the morning. I was staying at a hotel. We'd get in six in the morning and, and leave at seven, eight, nine o'clock in the evening. When we first started, you could shoot a cannon down the hall, not hit anybody at 10 o'clock in the morning because the 
the feeling was it was just a machine and people really weren't that invested in trying to make it great at that time. And uh, so we started showing up, both of us, six, seven o'clock, and people started noticing that. And all of a sudden, people started migrating in a little bit earlier and staying a little bit later. And we found a couple people there that were in the office that we really liked, David Apicello, Rich Russo, a couple others. And we brought in some of the people that Bill and I knew from Shy Day and other agencies and, and created a, a new sort of feeling about about the direction of the agency. And you mentioned those talks that Bill was having to leave Shiat and go to WPP. That was an interesting era. One of the things you may not know about me is I was one of the first people that was actually in the Saatchi building when it opened in 1988, 89, right around there. My, uh, I was running the sports commission for New York City at the time. And my chairman was a guy named Gary Sussanjara. I don't know if you knew Gary. No, I know of him. I didn't know him. So Gary, they ended up with a lot of presidents at Saatchi and Saatchi when they bought all those different agencies. So Gary was president of uh, the awkwardly and lengthily named Saatchi and Saatchi DFS Compton. Yeah. Uh, which was the combined Dancer Fitzgerald sample, another legendary shop, and the Compton Agency. And uh, that was an interesting time in our industry when all that was being put together. Did you observe any of that? Did you and Bill talk about it at all as what would become WPP was being created from scratch? Well, Martin had you know, just purchased Ogilvy. So... Uh, he already had that and that's why he hired us and he challenged us to, you know, to make it a more creatively driven shop again, uh, which it had fallen away from. But, uh, you know, I mean, as far as the rest of the machinations of that and what was going on and the fact that Fallon had, you know, had been part of a purchase that then when WPP did it, they were able to buy themselves back and some of those things we really didn't pay attention to because we were pretty much focused okay. on trying to trying to move the boat that we were now on you know given somewhat of the range not all of it uh it was still in a counter of an agency i mean that was one of the reasons i didn't want to go was but martin you know when i had my meeting with him you know i challenged him to you know, are we going to be given free reign to try to, to change the culture? And he said, yes. And he, you know, he pretty much kept his, his word to that. I would have lunch with him about every six months and give him a fill him in on where I thought we were going, what, what hurdles we still had. Um, and, you know, uh, I've got to be pretty close with Martin as far as feeling that, that he would listen to what I had to say. So I, I feel that he did, you know, I know a lot of people don't like him and that he PO'd a lot of people, but the reality is to me, it was pretty fair. Uh, and so I respect him for that. Yeah, no, I always like to judge people based on my own experience with them. And, uh, and I, I, I happen to agree with you. I think he, I've always found him to be a very straight shooter uh, in many respects. And you can't argue with what he built there and what he, 
has pulled yeah. off the last couple of years with S4. Uh, yeah. quite, quite a story. So I'm glad you went back and we went a little bit deeper on Shiat Day. I don't want to gloss over uh, a tremendous run at Ogilvy uh, and some of the great, great client work, the American Express work, you mentioned them in context with Brotherhood, but that was some of the most iconic work of the last, you know, 30 years. Talk about that tenure at Ogilvy. And you also worked with two incredibly dynamic women, uh, that I think we don't talk about enough, uh, Shelley and Charlotte. Let's talk a little bit about Ogilvy and remembrances of those two incredible leaders. Oh, great. I, it, it, I would you know, be remiss not to talk about them. And I, I think that, you know, the, the run we had at, at Ogilvy, uh, we were very fortunate, uh, Bill and I, to surround ourselves and win uh, the respect of not only the management there, but also um, in bringing in people that that you know did not see Ogilvy as a as an opportunity, uh, and so we were able to to draw in a lot of friends and creatives that would ordinarily probably not have uh, come to the agency. So you know we are grateful to all of them and I'm going to go through all the names, but we, we surrounded ourselves with a, a great group of people who helped push the ball forward and change the culture of the agency, I think, in doing so. But, you know, we, the, I think probably the first big win we had at the time was Hardee's. We walked in and we were sort of faced with losing one of the big accounts. So we, we pitched Hardee's and kept it. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Duracell was similar and we were able to keep it. And then uh, the uh, Eastern Airlines came along. It was in receivership and we uh, were able to win that in a, in a pitch. And Martin Chagru, who was then the person put in charge with the airline, was just a great, great guy who listened uh, to our, you know, thoughts and, and, and really let us do what we felt we needed to do. And uh, we went into a focus group one night and Rich Russo and myself were the team sort of late leading the charge on the pitch. And uh, Martin was in the back room with us and we had brought in a lot of, you know, um, uh, Eastern Airlines, uh, I forget what it's called, gold card or uh, medallion members. And so the frequent flyers, and they were just pissing all over the airline. You know, it's not on time, it's terrible, people are cranky, blah, blah, blah. And just, I mean, reciting for 30 minutes all the reasons they hated Eastern. And Rich and I turned to Martin and says, you don't have a hair on your chest if you don't go in there and, and surprise them and, and, you know, tell them that you're going to change this shit. And he was a whiskey drinker, and he took his, I'll never forget, took his whiskey glass, walked out the door behind the mirror, went in the other door, walked in, sat down, said, hi, I'm Martin Chagru, and disarmed everybody within 30 minutes. And Rich and I turned to each other and said, that's our campaign. We're just gonna put Martin Chagru in front of everybody and have him tell him what he's gonna do. So we came up with the idea of, of making it a hundred day, like a president, we were in the middle of a presidential campaign. So it was a hundred day, it was after just within the hundred days of the, of the, I forget who was in office then. And so we 
said, let's make it a political campaign first hundred days. And we did, and it was a terrific campaign shot by Jeff Lovinger, uh, shot like it was, you know, all real uh, uh, political camera work and it worked terrifically and got them going. And if it wasn't for the, the, uh, the oil embargo uh, that forced them to out of business, they were, they were on an incline going terrifically, but the embargo killed them. And it was sad to see, but still some great advertising that I truly, truly, uh, when I look at, go, it's, it holds up today. It's just, it's great stuff. But right after that, you know, one account that Martin told us we cannot uh, and should not play with was American Express because it was the one account that was really doing well. They had the Do You Know Me campaign. They had, you know, great people on it who had been working on it for a long, long time. And uh, so Bill and I were not really were told hands off, don't screw with American Express. And it was being run by Gordon Bowen and uh, Perry Merkley. And I forget the account guy on it who went to JWT uh, after that. But uh, shortly after the <laughs> we won Eastern, uh, the, the wheels start coming off of American Express unbeknownst to us. They're, Pretty soon, Gordon Bowen went to McCann and uh, Perry left to create his own agency and the account guy went to JWT. And now we're left with this flaming bag of you know what. And uh, it, now we have to try to throw ourselves on it. We don't know anybody. We don't know the client. We don't know you know, any of the players. Uh, the work is mediocre at best. It was sort of just trugging along on the same stuff they had been doing for years. And... Uh, so we lose it to Shaite. The worst thing that could happen to Bill and I is, you know, we, we lose the main account to Shaite. Everybody thinks that we were the ones that screwed it up because we were the lead creatives in the agency. Uh, but that did not, it was not our fault. So you talk about Shelly. Shelly comes in the next day with Bill into my office and says, we're gonna win back American Express. This is the, the next day, the day we, after we lost it. We're going to win back American Express. Uh, we still have this one piece of business called the, uh, uh, the service and establishment. Uh, you know, little ads were being done for the service establishment. So Harry's Bar needs an ad, so you do it. Uh, it was that type of stuff. And they said, you're, you're going to be in charge of it. And Bill Gray, who was the account person, uh, uh, who became my partner in running Ogilvy later, uh, you and Bill are going to run, run the pitch. You're going to run the, the account. And six months later, we won the account back with a campaign called Service uh, Establishment. Uh, we shot Harry Cipriani, Ted Ballesteri, uh, Chuck, uh, I forget the guy who started Toys R Us. Um, and it was a campaign that, that became global. Uh, and our client at the time, Elder Papone, who I have to say is, was and is the best client I ever had in my entire career, uh, was a true, true gentleman, Italian uh, gentleman who uh, would come in and you just wanted to, to see a smile on his face. And, and if he liked something, he got a big smile. He said, you're a genius. And if he didn't like it, he would say, it's okay. 
and you would go back and do better because you knew you wanted to keep to make him laugh, make him smile, and make him say you were genius. And he was a fantastic client, and again, made us all better by just inspiring us all to, to do better. Uh, and he came in and said, this campaign is brilliant. I want you to take this global. And uh, we did. And shortly thereafter, Lou Gerstner, who was good friends with Aldo because he used to be at American Express, uh, saw the global campaign that we were doing for uh, American Express, had now been made CEO of IBM, uh, went to Shelley, who he had known for years, and Charlotte, and said he wanted us to, to become agency of record, but we had like 30 different uh, agencies around the globe who had pieces of, you know, of different uh, uh, computer businesses, whether it was, you know, whoever it was in different offices. So we had to say to them, you're going to lose your revenue out of, out of those local uh, businesses, but we're going to help support it through a global campaign of IBM. And so we won IBM, uh, I think, mainly due to what we had done with American Express, or at least partly because of that. And give us a little more about Charlotte and about Shelley. So Shelley, you know, is amazing, uh, able to, to win the hearts of just about every client I've ever seen her with. She is uh, a true uh, person of understanding how to read people and get them to believe her and trust her. Uh, she's uh, a true, you know, artist at that. Uh, and she is somebody who had been, you know, Ogilvy, I think I might be wrong with this, but I think it was her first real job. And, and she's been with the agency forever. She's now chairman emeritus and has been, you know, there through all the, the fires and tribulations of the agency from back when David was walking the halls. Uh, so she is, you know, truly the soul of the, of the agency, even though she's no longer there, she, she was that person. I think, you know, Charlotte, uh, I had, I just liked more uh, because Charlotte was, would tell you, you know, if it, if it sucked, she would tell you it sucked. Uh, and it, it didn't matter if you were the client or you were the creative director. She was, uh, to me, more straightforward, uh, didn't beat around the bush. And, and to me, that was something I always, I think of myself that way. Uh, people have said, I don't suffer fools. Uh, and that I, you know, you'll know where I stand. You'll stand with me uh, whenever you're with me. Uh, so I, you know, I admired that in Charlotte. Uh, and Charlotte was, you know, when she was getting ready to leave, I think, you know, uh, I, I knew what was going to happen, uh, that they were going to move Shelley up from the president's office to the CEO office. And that the next uh, person that was going to be the CEO was probably going to be an account person. So I went to Charlotte and said, Charlotte, I want to become C uh, president of the New York office. I didn't want the job necessarily, but I wanted to have a bigger seat at the table and had wanted to be able to say, you know, to clients what I felt we needed to say and, and also be able to be more setting the tone of the agency and, and trying to, 
grow the agency with a culture that I felt had uh, it had you know let go. And Charlotte instantly, and I will always be grateful to her for this. She said, "Rick, you deserve to have that position. I will do everything I can to help you get it." And she did. And you know, in the end, they were wise and teaming me with Bill Gray, because as I said, I can't add one and one without a calculator. So I probably wasn't the, the, the best person to be in, in charge of the, the finances necessarily. Although I did learn, uh, Tro Pelagian, who was the uh, president of uh, North America, uh, I eventually teamed with him to, to run North America. He taught me a lot about managing and, and the administration of an agency that I hadn't necessarily ever learned. Uh, and I learned a lot from Bill Gray also. Great, great stuff. So 2003 rolls along, you're at the top of your game and your career takes a turn and you wind up where our friendship really accelerated in that wonderful town of Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And I'd love to talk a little bit about it. I want to make sure we talk about the inspiration series that you're doing now with our dear friend, Gina Grillo and her wonderful team at the Advertising Club of New York. But we'd be remiss, given our shared history in Richmond, not to talk about Mike Hughes and the VCU Brand Center. And in particular, I'd love to talk about that day. We were all there together uh, when Mike Hughes Hall opened up and that is uh, not many of us get to leave a true legacy that includes bricks and mortar. You have that Rick and that building and that what that institution became you and Mike true partners in crime uh, in all the right ways. And that was a very special day that I know I'll always remember. Well, uh, it, it again, like brotherhood has it holds a special place in my heart and uh, you know, I, as I said, I, uh, when I got where I didn't want to, to go to work anymore, I needed to make a change. And I had gotten to the point at Ogilvy where uh, there was no place more for me to go. I couldn't be CEO. And uh, they offered me to become, you know, the worldwide creative director. And Neil French was doing that. And and he didn't have a family and he enjoyed flying around and parachuting out and smoking cigars and drinking with the locals and, and then going off to the next one. I had no desire to do that. I had a family that I quite honestly wanted. I had missed my three girls growing up uh, and you know, they were one was two were already in college and one was about to enter college. And it was like, um, I've missed a large part of their life. The last thing I want to do now is fly around the globe and, and be uh, absent anymore. Um, and I was on the board of the Brand Center. I had you know, spent a lot of time at Ogilvy recruiting once I became co-president. I, I felt my job truly was to try to recruit new people and bring them in. And I went to a lot of schools, not only uh, ad schools, but uh, MBA programs. And it was there that I sort of realized that there was a big difference between how the potential clients and account people were being taught and how creatives were being taught and that they were two totally different bifurcated uh, points of view and how they were being taught and coming out of the school, 
they each had their own points of view of the world they were going to be entering and uh, realized then that that there need, needed to be a, a school where you could possibly have a potential client working alongside a creative so that it could build a, a better understanding of what the other one's needs were and also to hopefully uh, build a, a, a bridge to trust because in the end, that's the one thing that you need, an agency needs uh, with their client and client needs with their agency. And so I uh, had been on the board and we were at that time looking for a new director and uh, Mike Hughes was the chairman of the board and I had become very good friends and fond friends with Mike. And so I called Mike up after the day we had the meeting and said, you know, I, I'd actually think I could do that job as director and it, it's the next thing I want to try. And uh, he said, that's great. And uh, I said, but there's a problem. I have no degree. And so, you know, I'm, I don't know that I can get, take the job. And so we can't tell anybody. He set up a meeting with the president at the time of the school, VCU, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Tarani, who was a very entrepreneurial thinker and built that school up in, in the two decades he was there leading it. And he met with me and he said, okay, well, we'll hire you as an administrator uh, rather than a faculty member. And you have enough in 30 years of, <laughs> of the business uh, to, to earn a, a somewhat semblance of a degree. So he took the chance with me and, and uh, you know, I went down and ended up becoming the director and, and then did teach. Uh, and Mike was just a, a terrific mentor uh, and help in building that school. Let me go back here and that he was the person behind the school. Diane Cook Tench was an art director who worked at Martin Agency in Richmond. It was her idea to create a graduate program. There were other portfolio schools out in Miami Circus, the Creative, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, Miami Ad Center, Creative Circus, Portfolio School. They were all uh, portfolio schools that the industry had allowed to pop up in their absence of training anybody. Uh, and so uh, Mike backed Diane for a year to create the curriculum. Diane led the school for three years, then had to leave for some uh, health reasons. They brought in an academic from the University of Texas who didn't fare well. And that's when I stepped in. And then I led the school for 10 years um, and built the curriculum and, you know, brought, was able to bring in, uh, you know, and a whole new way of sort of teaching. We brought, we created a curriculum that included brand management and creative technology strategy rather than research. We changed it to strategy, all these things that were not really being taught in one school. We brought together and, uh, and then built a, a, you know, a, a whole new school that was in an old uh, dilapidated buildings on the school grounds had been donated to them. Dr. Trani was going to sell it off and have it demolished. And I went to him and said, I'd love to, uh, to take that building. And most everybody thought it was nuts. Uh, 
but I brought in Clive Wilkinson, who had just finished Shiat Day's building as architect. And Clive did a great job of creating a space that still today is rather unique for any academic space. Uh, and the program was great. And back to that night when we named Mike Hughes Hall, uh, Mike at that time was already, you know, sick with cancer. And we were fortunate to be able to get the backing through uh, Michael Roth at IPG and the help of many people within IPG, whether it was uh, John Adams, who was the, in the CEO of, of Martin AZ and Mike Hughes' partner, uh, Bob Greenberg, who was with IPG, uh, and uh, uh, God, uh, Marcio Marrera, who was at the time still on board and was at McCann. Those three went in with me to pitch Michael Roth on donating a million dollars to the naming of the building. And Michael did not flinch and said he would. And we were able to dedicate that building to Mike. And it was a special evening and, and one I'll always remember as you do. I'd love to talk about uh, a word that we've used before. And I think it came up a little earlier um, that word being inspiration. And uh, you have done some fabulous work creating permanent tributes, if you will, to some of the greatest minds this industry has ever produced uh, in partnership with our dear friend, Gina Grillo and her wonderful organization, the Advertising Club of New York. I'd love to talk about uh, your inspiration for the Inspiration Series. <laughs> and uh, let's dive into that a little bit. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. First of all, you know, Gina and the, the Ad Club and International Andes have been a great supporter of this project. And the inspiration for it honestly goes back to, you know, my time sort of managing the, uh, Ogilvy and, and trying to attract talent. And then conversely, uh, when I went to the Brand Center, uh, you know, trying to get people to follow a career path into, into advertising and realize that, you know, a lot of people now, and I don't, maybe let me jump back a little bit, say that, you know, from the beginning of advertising week, when I was on the board, uh, I started a program there called Operation Inspire, which was to get high school students uh, from inner city to come to a program that I led every year for eight years. Uh, and, you know, we had many of the high schools sending students, mostly uh, of color. And I would, you know, show films and have uh, different speakers come who were uh, of color and were in the business to talk to, to them about why this was a, a career path. And then after that, uh, we even did a film, thanks to you and the four A's called Pursuit of uh, uh, Passion which was uh, aimed at uh, you know, schools, the inner city schools, and was you know, created and directed by uh, Charlie Tursick and Cecilia Gorman. And uh, we were able to get that out to a lot of high schools, thanks to the support of the forays. And, and at that time, Advertising Week, and we did it under the legis of the Brand Center. So I've, for many years, been, you know, dedicated to trying to bring in as many uh, different people into the business, uh, which is why I went to the Brand Center and created the program there that 
had much more depth to different, uh, you know, which we've talked about the different curriculum that we put together. After coming out of that, I realized that a lot of people still believe that the only way into the industry was through four years of undergrad program and then either portfolio schools of some kind, whether it be uh, the Brand Center or Miami uh, Ad School, the Portfolio Center, Creative Circus, all these schools popped up when the agency stopped uh, their training programs. And so the only way into the business was to almost take six years to get in. And I felt that was you know, a bit much and it was not attractive to many uh, inner city kids, that's for sure. So decided to put together this series that I sold to uh, uh, or pitched to Gina and that they instantly got behind. And we sat down with some of the you know, more interesting people in the business. Uh, some of them, you know, most of them icons, Lee Clow, Keith Reinhardt, Tom Burrell, who started the first national uh, African-American agency. So John Hegarty started BBH. Carol Williams, who you know had her own agency and still does. Uh, George Lois, who's an icon to be sure. David Droga, David Kennedy, Susan Hoffman, uh, Jimmy Smith. You know, all of these are very, very interesting documentaries we've done. Each of them last about 18 to 20 minutes. And it's just them, me interviewing them, but I'm not on camera. You don't hear me. It's just their story. Um, so much like what you're doing with Great Minds, but I'm not involved in, you know, you hearing me ask the questions. I just sort of, uh, we edit that part out and we hear their story. So it's one person telling their story and we get content and we add to it. Um, and we've, you know, tried to get this out to as many inner city schools, but also colleges and even agencies uh, to, you know, inspire people to see that the path into this business is not a direct line. Lee Clow, you know, started out by, you know, studying Walt Disney and looking at Mad Magazine and Surfer Magazine and getting inspiration to, to do what he ended up doing. Uh, Tom Burrell started off in the mailroom. So each of these stories are pretty unique and pretty interesting paths that they take. Uh, you've interviewed Keith Reinhardt and Great Minds and his story is pretty interesting in that, you know, he came from a, from a, a small town and, and ended up going to Chicago and saying, this is what I want to do and uh, ended up getting a job in the business. We have new ones that we're just about ready to finish editing. Dan Wyden, Jeff Goodby and Rich Silverstein. And uh, we just filmed about a month ago in, uh, in Manhattan, Nina DeSessa, who's uh, you know, ran uh, McCann for many, many years. Uh, Bob Greenberg, uh, who was founder with his brother of RGA, uh, Susan Cradle, who's now the chief creative officer global of, of FCB, and Brian Collins, who's a designer who I, I had hired, had the good fortune to hire at Ogilvy, who now has his own company called Collins and works for many brands, Coke, Target, tons of brands, designing and creating communications for all of them. So that was the inspiration for it. It's really been a you know a blessing for me to be able to sit down with these people, interview them for a couple hours, hear their stories, and then work with you know editors uh, to put these together. 
I must add that uh, Robert Shaw West uh, at the Republic uh, in North Carolina is uh, his team uh, has been the ones who have filmed almost all of these. And uh, so they've been a great partner in putting these together as well. All those legends, it's a it's a it's a murderer's row of creative legends in our industry. Was there one moment where someone said something to you where it really struck you? something that you learned that you didn't know or something that just really stuck with you? Because that's quite a group of people that you've assembled there for the series. Yeah, I think, you know, all of them have unique stories to tell. And so there's each individual has some, you know, many things that that struck me uh, that, you know, enlightened me, whether it was a philosophy or whether just the path that they took. I think Tom Burrell probably was, to me, the most inspirational in that, you know, here's a guy whose father told me would never make it in, as anything other than a mailman, uh, did not have confidence that he had the ability nor was able to make it in a, in a world that was made up of, you know, the opposite color of him. Uh, and he persevered and pushed the mail cart, uh, was the first African-American in, in Chicago to be hired uh, in an advertising agency uh, at that time. And he got hired as a in the mailroom and then worked his way up and then started his own company and created you know, legends within it. People who have come out of his agency, including Carol Williams and many others, Jimmy Smith, uh, all sort of you know, did their uh, internship uh, and were mentored by Tom. So I think, again, each story has its uniqueness, uh, but I would say Tom was, was pretty inspirational. Well, that's great. Well, Rick, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, we've been friends a long time. It was a great privilege that I had to serve on your board um, at the Brand Center. And, and when you were running that place, you know, those meetings it would one a year, as you recall, and yeah. everybody came. Uh, and we were as passionate about trying to help you uh, as we were because of you, Rick. It was your leadership and your passion that drove, you know, what was, a, you know, myself excluded, but, you know, a tremendous board. People like John Kamen and Bob Greenberg and Susan and, uh, and so many others. So um, I can't thank you enough for this conversation and uh, you have forever changed our industry and left an indelible impact, not only with what you did in your career, uh, highlighted by that tremendous tenure at Ogilvy, but the legacy of what you built at the Brand Center. And not many of us in life um, can look back and point to a building that we built, but it was your vision for that building and the support of Dr. Tarani and the other administrators at BCU. Uh, and uh, you've impacted the lives of so many, including many young students who are there today or will be there in future classes in those hallowed halls that you built that may never know it was you, but you know it was you. And uh, I think, you know, for me, I I've never lamented what other people don't know. As long as I know, that's good enough for me. And, uh, and you have a built and created a beautiful family to boot. So thanks so much for doing this. A true great mind. Rick Boyko. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's your friendship for many years has been special to me and I appreciate it again. 
you helped build the school with the being one of the true leaders of the board. You were one of the first ones to get the school to actually get a donation at the time uh, from Yahoo. So, uh, you know, we still owe you for that. The school does. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Now.